Hey, welcome to night school, Friday night school. One of these days I'll do another every night's a school night, as if anybody's worrying about it or waiting for one, but still, it's good to do those, and it's been over three months, I think. But I'll do one before the fall is over, although by the time November's here, it feels like fall's already over. Fall feels like a one-month season, at least in this part of the country, because by the time November hits, it gets so rainy, and you start to get those very cold nights that it doesn't even... Like, I think of fall as very moderate. You know, I think of the weather being kind of in between summer and winter. And by the time November hits, it's pretty much... It's pretty close to what winter is going to be like. At least that's how I feel. At least that's how I feel. You know, I've been selling some stuff from my music collection. Things that I haven't listened to in 15 years. Stuff that people want. You know, I have some stuff that's very collectible. Old tapes, noise tapes, things like that. And, you know, it's not difficult to get rid of those things. In some cases, they're by people I respect. They're by artists I respect. It's not a lack of interest. But I look at some of that stuff, and it's like, I haven't listened to this in 15 years. I haven't listened to this since I got it, and I don't revisit it. And there's somebody out there who's going to enjoy it way more than I do, and I honestly need money or something more than I need this thing. But it's kind of an interesting experience doing that, getting rid of things like that, because I don't do it very often. I don't sell things that often. And I know some people are doing that continuously. But it's always weird. Like I was on eBay. I was selling something on eBay. And this guy messaged me. Well, because I I'd listed this. This is going to be so interesting. You can already tell this is going to be an incredible story. But I listed this tape by a fairly well-known band, but it's a fairly rare tape just because all tapes have become rare. It wasn't rare when it came out, but because cassettes have become ultra-desirable, the cassette version of this album by a fairly well-known band is a somewhat coveted item. But I'd listed it with a reserve price, and I'd never done that before. It's a total scam, I found out. You have to pay a bunch of money to list it, you have to pay like five bucks minimum to do a reserve price. It's like, just set the item at the lowest. I mean, what I learned from that is set the item at the lowest you're willing to let go of it for. Don't do the whole reserve price thing. But anyway, I listed it for a reserve price and it didn't end up selling. It got bids, but because it didn't meet the reserve price, it didn't actually sell. I know that part hooked you. If you didn't think this story was good so far, that part hooked you. But anyway, I relisted the item, and I, I basically set it for a, a lower price than the reserve with a buy it now that was a little bit lower than the reserve. And then later that night, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to up the price by $10 on each end. I'm going to up the, the base price $10, and I'm also going to up the buy it now $10. And I woke up to a message from this guy. And this is something that, that people who do this all the time, like people who are always on these online marketplaces, they probably experience this all the time. But I personally have never experienced it. And this guy messaged me with this, and he was in the U.S., but there's something mentally wrong with him. He has very good feedback. He has a lot of feedback, and it's all very good. So he's a good eBay user, but he's freaking out of his mind. And I, I should actually, no, I think, I think I deleted the message because it was so weird. Um, but he sent me this very bizarre message. Like, he seemed really upset that I changed the price. 
He was like, how many more times are you going to do this? But it was all in this very broken way of talking. Like, it wasn't just autocorrect. Because I looked through, I was so curious about his message that I looked through his feedback and you could see where he typed things to people and he wrote reviews. I didn't know that eBay had this feature. It must be a relatively new feature, but you can actually review things. You can review albums on eBay, which I had no idea about. I can't imagine reviewing things on eBay. But I could tell from his writing, his other writing, that he just writes in this completely insane way. And it's not interesting. It's like I've said about homeless people. It's like, I have no problem with somebody who's out of their mind ranting and raving. But I judge those people by the same standards I judge anybody, which is at least be interesting. And so this guy who messaged me, he was just, he was like, it was just this fractured language that was very difficult to understand because it was just everything was off. Even if you even if you uh, like kind of tried to figure out what he was saying, you, it still didn't make sense. But he was like, you're not, let's hope you're not being another Benjamin Moore. And I'm like, who's Benjamin Moore? And the way he, the context seemed to be saying that there was, there's some guy named Benjamin Moore who frequently changes the prices of albums he's selling. And keep in mind, I changed it once. My original product, my original listing didn't sell for the reserve price, so I relisted it under a new price, and then I edited that once just to add $10, a measly $10, just because for whatever reason, I'd feel better letting go of this album if I get 10 more dollars. It's just one of those little things, like I wouldn't be able to explain it, it's how I feel. But this guy apparently needed to write a paragraph, and he sent me a paragraph accusing me of being a Benjamin Moore. And that name sounds familiar, but I can't think of who that would be, like, as if I would know who it is. Like, is it some record dealer? Is it a guy who runs an an online store? Is it someone of note? Is it someone I should know? Should I know who that is? Should I know who Benjamin Moore is? Because I'm apparently at risk of becoming a Benjamin Moore... I should know who it is, right? But the guy, what was weird is he ended his message with something to the effect of, like, hopefully you can, he's like, I wish you the best, and hopefully you can touch the stars, because blah, blah, blah. And it's just really weird phrasing. I mean, it's it's sort of like, it reminds me of this this friend I had in high school. He didn't go to my high school. He went to another high school in my, my hometown. And he has some mental issues. You know, I stay in sporadic touch with him. And you can always tell when he's going through mental issues because he sends you these very vague, grammatically incorrect messages out of nowhere. Like some years back, he had a fiance who it turned out was just cheating on him. You know, just that, that classic horror story of infidelity. He was in love with this girl and he found out that she was cheating on him all the time. And already having, and he was doing well up to that point, but already having mental issues, it caused him to just have a total break from reality, as you would expect it to, you know, because even just, even the sanest person in the world has a break from reality when they get cheated on like that. But he, he was posting, he had a Facebook account, and he was posting the strangest messages, like talking about status like talking about how certain people have status, but it was in this very fractured language. 
Like he seemed to be implying that his girlfriend had cheated on him with people of a higher status. That was what I could interpret. And I feel bad talking about it. I don't think he listens to this, but I feel bad even talking about it. But it's just when you do a show, sometimes you talk about people you know. But it kind of reminded me of that, where it's just this very fractured way of talking. And I have an old friend who types like that all the time. But once again, he's interesting. You're intrigued by what he's saying, even though what he's saying is, is incredibly idiosyncratic. And it's difficult for the layman to understand this. Uh, this other friend I have, it's like, at least when he does it, there's something compelling. You feel like he's saying something and it's kind of esoteric or just beyond reach. And you do actually get something out of it. But with other people, they, they do it in this way that it's like, it almost feels like somebody's trying to write poetry, but they're failing terribly at it. It's like they saw somebody somewhere express themselves in an, in an enig, enigmatic way. I can't even say enigmatic anymore. I used to be able to say enigmatic, and I can't anymore. Enigmatic? Enigmatic. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's like somebody saw somebody express themselves in an enigmatic way, and they're trying to recreate that, but they fail horribly at it. So that's what this eBay message was like. And I thought about responding in earnest, but I was like, this is just too weird. And I responded and I just said, I hope all is well, <laughs> you know, because like, honestly, the fact that this guy took the time, you know, and I was the night before that I'd just been talking on this show about how the most terrifying thing in the world to me is when someone is living in a different world than you. It's not people dying. It's people who are living, but they're living in a fundamentally different world from you. That is terrifying to me. And so this guy is clearly living in a different world, and he was so disturbed by the fact that I changed the price on an eBay auction once, and that he accused me of being another Benjamin Moore, and told me, hopefully I can touch the stars, and he wishes me the best. But I sent him this message, I, I, I was like, I need to respond to this. And so I, I just said, hope all is well. <laughs> As if I was talking to an old friend, which interestingly, that's what I say to that same guy that I knew I knew in high school who sometimes talks the same way. When he does that, I just say, hey, hope all is well, man, because I'm, I'm feeling like it's not when somebody's talking that way, especially a stranger on eBay. It's like all I can think of is, man, I hope all is well. But he responded again to that with something about touching the stars. And it was almost word for word what he had said before. And I'm just like, yeah, I just blocked him. I blocked him so that he can't ever bid on anything I sell because I'm just like, if this guy bids on something, it's going to be a problem. If he's doing this just because I changed the price, and it's not like somebody already put a bid in. Like if somebody already bids on an item, you can't change the price. Once somebody bids, the price remains fixed. You can only change it before somebody's put a bid in. So there's no way you can screw someone over. It's just you either are willing to pay that price or you're not. But it just shows you where people's heads are at. Um, but, you know, speaking of that alter- alternate reality thing, you know, I heard about this Colin Kaepernick documentary, which I'm not going to watch. And his whole story feels like it was personally created just to mess with me. <laughs> you know, it's all about me. No, it does, though, because he first came on the scene 
in the NFL. He was a backup quarterback on the 49ers. And Alex Smith either got hurt or got benched. And Colin Kaepernick at that point, he was he had a great arm, like strength-wise. You know, he had a very strong arm. But people weren't prepared for his running ability. And that's fairly common early in a quarterback's career because college football quarterbacks do a lot more running, especially if they're not white. And so Colin Kaepernick was an incredible runner, and it's something most teams aren't expecting. It's very difficult. Like If you're familiar with the player Lamar Jackson, one of the things that's made him so good the last few seasons, last couple of seasons, is that he has an, he's like a, a Michael Vick, where it's just he has this incredible running ability. It's usually not very sustainable. The reason why that usually gives young quarterbacks an advantage is because other teams haven't completely prepared for it, and it's difficult to prepare for it if a quarterback is very good at running. But usually either through injury, it's something that puts a quarterback at more risk. So the more a quarterback runs, the more likely he is to get hurt. And as he ages, his running ability isn't going to be as good. So while those quarterbacks are usually very impressive their first five or so seasons, it's very rare to see them sustain that level of success. And Colin Kaepernick, he wasn't anywhere near as good as Lamar Jackson. He kind of caught people off guard. You know, taking nothing away from whatever natural talent he had to get into the NFL and get into that position... He had an advantage because he was a backup quarterback who caught people off guard. So that season where the 49ers made it to the Super Bowl against the Ravens, people didn't know what to expect from him. And so his running ability that during that playoff run was crazy. He was running all over other teams. And he remained pretty good for a year or two after that. But teams learned. They learned how to play against him. And it turns out he wasn't that good. Like, it turns out Colin Kaepernick just wasn't that good. Once people learned how he plays, they were able to stop him. Because if a guy's good, he's good. He's going to keep his job if he's good enough. And that was the reason why I feel like it's somewhat personal for me is because at that time, the 49ers were an extremely good team, and they're in the Seahawks division. So there was this very fun but intense rivalry between the 49ers and the Seahawks where I would say we were the two best teams in the league for a couple years. And the Seahawks ended up doing better. You know, we won the Super Bowl during the, the, the peak of that rivalry. And then we made it to, the, to another Super Bowl. And the 49ers dropped off a cliff. They went from being one of the two best teams to being terrible just two or three years later. And Colin Kaepernick was a part of that. Like, he was not able to sustain you know success in this league and he ended up getting benched but before that like when he was at the peak of his success people didn't like him like everybody except for 49ers fans didn't like him he was very vain he didn't talk a lot but I remember like like when the the 49ers would play the Seahawks like people would post screen caps of his Instagram versus Russell Wilson's Russell Wilson, if you're not familiar, I know not everybody here follows football, but Russell Wilson is the Seahawks quarterback. He's he's a guy who has sustained an incredible career. Russell Wilson has sustained a, a very strong, incredible career. 
but you know, both he and Colin Kaepernick were new quarterbacks, so they were in this heated rivalry, and people would compare their Instagrams because that's the world we live in. And it would show Russell's and Russell's was like about him visiting kids in the hospital. And it was all about reaching out. It was all about charity and helping people. Whether you think that's an act or not, that's what his Instagram was about. That's kind of what he's all about. You know, that's I, I, I believe it's sincere. I think that's the type of guy he is. But Colin Kaepernick, it was all just shoes. It was just his massive shoe collection. It would just be photos of his closet filled with like a million, literally a million. It's the biggest closet in the world. But it would just be rows upon rows of ultra expensive Nikes in different colors. It was all just, you know, surface materialism. And people were like, this is the difference between these guys. You know, and and so, you know, Colin Kaepernick, it was all about like bling and shoes, like hip hop fashion it was just he was showing off how much money he has and what he spends it on. He was showing off the expensive things he buys. And, you know, who cares what these players are into? He's a rich guy. He wants to buy shoes. I, I, I personally didn't care about that. I just didn't like him in general. I just didn't really like his demeanor. It had nothing to do with shoes. But I do think that was an interesting observation. That Colin Kaepernick was just showing off his expensive shoe collection, showing off his designer jewelry. And then he got benched because he wasn't playing very well. This is before all of the controversy. This is before he became this activist. And he was nothing like that. He was never that. There weren't even hints of that. There wasn't even the slightest hint that he was an activist. And there are players who are activists. There have been players forever who make statements about social issues. And he didn't even hint at any interest in that. And he got benched, and then that was when all of this was picking up. He got benched in the around the time that all of this, this social justice industry was picking up. And I think he saw an opportunity. He grew his hair out, and he took a knee. But he wasn't the only player taking a knee. The Seahawks had a player, Michael Bennett, who took a knee. Didn't lose his job. He was a starter. And there are people who talk shit. Like, I have relatives who didn't like it. Personally, I don't care if a player takes a knee during the national anthem. I think it's incredibly phony when people get outraged that a player wants to sit or kneel during the national anthem. I couldn't care less. But players didn't lose their jobs over it. And there were a bunch of players who did it. There were players on every team just about. There were players throughout the league. There were even other players on the 49ers, Colin Kaepernick's team, who took a knee. And they didn't get in any serious trouble. There were people who said, oh, can you believe that he did that? Oh, can you believe? Oh, I hate that the guy took a knee. I hate that he took a knee. But guys didn't lose their jobs over it. Colin Kaepernick, though, was the most toxic about it. He's the only one who turned it... He's the only one who tapped into the industry side. He was the only one who seemed to see it as an opportunity. And he had also been benched for not playing well. 
And when he left the 49ers, he was asking for a much higher price tag than he was worth. He was still looking for starter money, was my understanding, when he had proved that he's really just a a good backup. So between him causing all this controversy, you know, and not just because he's taking a knee, but the way that he was handling himself. He was creating a distraction. He wasn't just making a statement. Like, all of the other players who took a knee and made statements, they weren't creating nearly the level of distraction. So he created this environment where he was a risky person to bring on your team. But ultimately, he was benched before all of this took place. But people who don't pay attention to football, and amazingly, even people who do, took his side and they're like, he was benched because of racism. He was benched because he he kneeled in protest. No, he wasn't. And so people start believing that and you can't challenge it. That's the strange thing about all of these narratives is that you're not allowed to challenge them. You're not allowed to state the fact that Colin Kaepernick was benched for reasons completely independent. And the fact that other players not only didn't lose their jobs, didn't miss out on contracts, but they kept their starting positions and got new contracts, even though they took a knee too. And you can look this up. You can look up players who took a knee during that season. And it was not just him, but he, he's really, he's an opportunist and he's created this whole, he's, he's, he's participated in this whole social justice industry and apparently in this new documentary, which I haven't watched and won't watch, so I won't pretend like I've seen it, but I have heard people talk about it, and they say that he compares football recruitment practices to slavery. And that's amazing, because you think about his shoes. And he wasn't the most, you know, when he had that giant shoe collection, he was not one of the highest paid players. He was a, kind of a nobody who happened to be in the right place at the right time to become well-known. He was a backup who happened to take over when the starter got injured. So even being a relatively unknown new player, he was making enough money to buy an incredible shoe collection, a shoe collection that's probably worth more than many people's yearly salaries. And then he has the audacity now to say that that's like slavery. And what amazes me, though, is that I knew a couple girls who are big football fans, and they took his side. They became, they hated him, actually, back when the Seahawks and 49ers had their rivalry. They hated him just like I did. He was a rival player. There's sort of an arrogance to him. There's something about him that's unlikable. Not unlovable, (laughs) unlikable. And what's interesting, though, is these are women and they have completely taken his side. Like they are they're fans of him now because of the social justice. And they actually believe the narrative that he's presented, that he lost his career because the NFL is racist. And I'm like, you were there. You're fans, too. What am I missing something? I don't think I am. I've paid as much attention as anybody. But it's like as soon as that narrative was created, even people who know better completely bought in. 
And then now he's comparing football recruitment to slavery. At that point, you can compare anything that's competitive. Anytime that somebody is evaluated for their skill, you could compare that to slavery based on those standards. And I mean, I hate to even comment on this, but it was just, it's on my mind because I am a football fan and I've watched this develop and I can't believe how long it's gone on. You know, like he got a Nike contract, like he's, he's the first player who was benched and didn't get a contract who got a, a big Nike promotional deal just for this. And we live in a time too, where like the season opener this year, it was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers playing and I went to their team website to see when the game was. And they have a, an actual link like in their navigation bar on their website that just says social justice. Like there's a link on their homepage that just you see like stats, schedule, social justice. It's like this is what's been created and it's everywhere. It is absolutely everywhere now. And to be honest, like I, I've only been watching the Seahawks the last few weeks. Like when the season started, I was watching all the games that I could. You know, I watched a lot of games last year, but it's, it's really burned me out. Everything is tainted now. And not just by this particular sociopolitical subject. It's just everything is tainted one way or another. And a lot of it does revolve around these social politics. But it kind of blows my mind that that people have gone along with this Kaepernick thing as long as they have. It's amazing how long he's been able to milk it. And it's amazing how dishonest and disingenuous it is. And it is. Like to me, there's it's it's just it's a complete you want to talk about mirages. Because even though all of this is a mirage, people create some very blatant mirages. Like, it's one thing to wake up in your bed in the morning and be like, okay, I'm in a bed and it's real, it's soft, it's built a certain way out of this material. Yeah, I know, I know that guy, I know that, I know that night school boy uh, says everything's a mirage, but this sure feels like a real bed. And I sure feel like a real person. That's one thing. But like, when you see these stories that get created, and they are stories... And the way that they just get perpetuated and promoted, it's kind of, it's just incredible that people are willing to believe in this illusion. And the Kaepernick one, because I am a football fan, it stands out to me in particular, because if you are an actual football fan and you watch it objectively, there's no way you could buy into that narrative unless you want to. And some people, of course, want to. Like, speaking of the, these women who I like and respect and everything, it's not like I think these are idiots. And I always point that out. I always point that out when somebody sees things differently than I do, who I know. I always point out that I, it's, it, even though I disagree with them, I don't have a lack of respect for them because of it. I don't think they're stupid because of it. It actually intrigues me that they, they're willing to see it so differently. And it does make me look at my own perspective, and I do challenge my own perspective. Like, over the last six or however many years Kaepernick has been doing this, I have asked myself, like, am I missing something? Am I, am I wrong? I do ask myself that. And if I found out that I was wrong, I'd be willing to walk it back, but I'm not wrong. And I know I'm not wrong because I've gone over it again. I've gone over it, you know, multiple times and I've just been like, 
No, an illusion has been created. And I think that people voluntarily believe in it. But once they believe in it, they can't not see it. And the fact that he's making documentaries where he's comparing football to slavery. You know, and that's the classic talking point is like, these guys make so much money and they do. That's not a, even though that's a cliche old person argument, even though that's a kind of a cliche baby boomer argument to say, oh, how can the NFL players complain? They make so much money, dude. Yeah, that's an old person argument, but it's not a wrong argument. Even though it's a cliche and like every old person makes that observation, it's not wrong. When the lowest paid player is making hundreds of thousands of dollars, I don't even know what it is anymore. I think like 20 years ago, the lowest paid players, I think they were making something like $275,000 a year just for going to practice and never having to play in a game. It might even have been higher. Most guys made more than that. I would say most players in the NFL, guys who are actually on the team and not the practice squad, I believe most, if not all of them, I mean, I don't know about this. I'd have to look it up. I'm pretty sure most of them make close to, if not a million dollars or more a year. They make a lot of money either way. Huge amount of money. And yeah, it's temporary, but they've all gone to college. Oftentimes on scholarships. So they... And oftentimes they achieved success because you have to figure even the lesser known guys in the NFL were successful in college. You know, because the way football works is it's like the guys who are stars in high school or the guys who are on the football team in high school. Maybe let's start with college, like everybody who's on the college football team, more or less, was really good in high school. Most guys, every once in a while, a guy didn't play football in high school and he just decides to play in college and turns out to be really good. I know there's a couple guys who ended up in the NFL who only played something like a year or two of college football. They, they switched over from another, another sport, but they were almost always successful athletes in high school. But everybody who's on the college football team was a successful high school athlete, more or less. And every single guy in the NFL was a successful college athlete, if not a star on his given team. So all of these guys could become successful car salesmen at the very least. And many of them do things like that. Like there are a lot of guys who go to the NFL and only last a couple of years, but they have a college education. They might have a reputation back in the, the town where they played college or in their hometown And they can get a job at a car dealership. They can get a job somewhere by somebody who's like, oh, you were Brad, you were Brad Michaels. You, you caught the touchdown pass in the blah, blah, blah game. You know, a lot of these guys, it's, and they have a network too. If these guys want to, even if football doesn't work out, they can do a lot with their lives. And I'm not saying anything that people don't know, but I am a football fan and I, I I doubt that, you know, people who listen to this show might not follow the sport like I do. And it just kind of blows my mind. And I mean, I shouldn't even dignify it, but just the idea that a football career is anything like slavery, it's just, it takes such a a level of cognitive blindness. It takes a, a level of manipulation to say that. 
Like the person who's doing that is just being explicitly manipulative, but to believe it. And that's the thing is they're tailoring it not to football fans because football fans are going to know better, but they're tailoring that to people who don't follow football, who are going to watch that documentary and be like, yeah, they have a bunch of black guys competing in skill games during training camp to try to prove themselves to get recruited. That is kind of like slavery. They're tailoring that for people who don't know shit about the game and the processes that play out. You know, the recruitment processes. And that's kind of who the whole Kaepernick narrative has been marketed to. The number of people I know who don't pay any attention to football, who have an opinion on that, because it fits their social or political narrative, they have an opinion on Colin Kaepernick, and they, don't, they have no idea what they're talking about. But I just had to say something about it here. Because it amazes me how long it's gone on. And, and that's kind of the thing, is nothing gets walked back. I've said that over and over again. But it amazes me that nothing gets walked back. No matter how wrong and disingenuous, you know, information is. I mean, you think about the last year and a half and, you know, something came out where the U.S. is funding these tests on dogs. These horrible, cruel, scientific tests where dogs are tortured. I don't even want to describe. Actually, I'm not going to describe what's done to these dogs, but it is horrific. It is systematic torture, and it is gruesome. It's like the worst type of animal testing you can imagine. It's torture, brutal torture. And this is the Fauci, you know, this this is a Fauci-sponsored project. Trust the science. Torture the dogs. Because that's what gets me about the science topic is just trust the science includes testing testing on animals it includes torturing animals it includes horrific laboratory tests it includes bioweapons and people who are these science fanboys they like science only when it is channeled into something that can be openly appreciated, like medicine. But they're willing to wash their hands of all of this gruesome and horrific stuff. And then it just goes back to my, my point about global warning. Did he say global warming? No, I said global warning. It goes back to that, where it's like, the reason, if that's real, and I don't really have an opinion, I don't care. If the world dies, it dies, man. As above, so below. We as people die. Planets probably die too. We know they die. They're always talking about dead stars, right? <laughs> They're always talking about, isn't Mars a dead planet? A mostly dead planet? Planets die too. As above, so below. The, ma- the microcosm mirrors the macrocosm. People die. Planets die. Entire solar systems die. But people can't even cope with their own inevitable death, so of course they can't cope with planetary death. Not that we should encourage it, just like your own body. 
It's not that you should encourage your body to die. It's not that you should deliberately do things that will hurt your body. That's how should we, we should treat our planet as well. We shouldn't do things that deliberately hurt our planet. You know, a certain amount of destruction is just inevitable. Survival depends on a certain amount of destruction. Food is destruction. Eating is destruction. We sustain ourselves through various forms of destruction. But our destruction should be very conscious and deliberate. So it's not that we should just destroy the world and say, cool, but what's destroying our world comes from scientific innovation. It's STEM. It's STEM. STEM is what's destroying the world. Where do you think pollution comes from? Where do you think all of this stuff comes from? Who, who supplied us with this? Everybody's like, oh, it's the stupid rednecks that are going to destroy the world. Oh, it's the stupid rednecks who don't believe in global warning. Dude, the stupid rednecks who don't even believe the apocalypse is imminent. It's them. But I thought you said they were too stupid to understand science. So how are they contributing to it? Seems to me that the people who developed industry and technology, engineering, seems like those are the people who developed these systems and these devices that are destroying the planet, that are sucking the life out of the planet. Who built the drills that do fracking? That do fracking? Who built all that stuff? It seems like that came from science, right? Didn't that come from inventors? Didn't that come from all of the people that Google celebrates on its stupid little homepage? So who's going to take responsibility for it? It's, but like everything, they blame the, the layman. Did you say the gayman? No, they blame the layman, not the gayman. actually segues into my next point which is totally unrelated but i don't you know i could talk about the science thing forever but it just blows my mind just to wrap that up where it's just like oh it's the stupid people who are polluting our world it's like i thought that it was you guys who created the means to pollute the world i thought it was i thought it was stem who developed nuclear weapons you know at what point did they take responsibility and then you have stuff too like the, the, the torture of animals what they were doing to these dogs absolutely horrific stuff stuff that if there's a hell you will go to hell for that you will go to hell for doing that for funding that you won't just go to hell you've created hell I saw photos. I saw photos of these dogs in the laboratory. And I, this was months ago that I even heard about it. It came out more recently that it was true. But I heard about it months ago. But I couldn't even pay that close of attention. It's too sad. It's too bad. It's just that horrible cruelty we perpetuate to learn things. And the amount of money that goes into that. The fact that Everybody talks about all this. Oh, we, we, we could use all this money to, to end homeless, homelessness. We could use all this money to feed the poor. Instead, you're giving untold amounts of money to laboratories that do absolutely horrific, torturous things to beagles. And you're the people saying, trust the science? 
The science is settled. Different reality. You're living in a different reality. You're living in a sick and twisted reality. You're driving down the highway with your headlights off. But, uh, you know, just to get away from that, because I could go on forever, and I often do go on forever about it, and I'm not going to say anything I haven't said a million times on previous episodes as far as the whole science thing goes. Um, saying layman and gayman made me think of something. Like, I, going through my collection, I was, I've been listening to things I haven't visited in a while. One of them was an old tape an old cassette limited to 50 copies by a gayman who's well-known in a very niche music field, experimental music, noise. Uh, and he, he's known because he's always just, he's a gayman. He's an actual gayman. And he's been doing explicit gay material his entire career. And he's been around forever. He's been around for at least 30 years. And he's been doing it forever. Like his his album artwork often has, you know, explicit photos of nude men and the subject matter. You know, this tape, for example, like the cover of the tape, it's nothing too, it's not, it's not the worst that he's done. And, and not worst, but just, it's not the gayest thing he's done, maybe is what I could say. But it's like a bunch of naked guys. It's like a playgirl. It's like a, it's like a collage of like playgirl type guys. And the, the song title, like the, the album is called Barebacking, which if you, if you don't know what that means, don't look it up. You can figure it out what that means. And, you know, some of the subject matter, too, it's like there's, there's a track called like Live at the All-Male Adult Cinema. So it's very gay, very gee. It's what we call very gee. And it's funny, though, like, you know, because... This guy, he's always done that, and he's he's well-known in the field that he's in, in the niche field that he's in. And it's like, I can listen to that, and I can, it's art. It's art. Like, listening to that doesn't make you gee. Like, even though it has, you know, a bunch of naked men on it, even though all of the content, you know, there's no narrative content, it's just noise. It's just very crude noise music. But all of the content in it, there's no, like, vocals, there's no narrative content saying, like, there's nothing in the music, there's nothing in the noise going, I'm gay, I'm gay, are you gay? I'm gay, you're gay. Are you gay? Are you gay like me? You're listening to this, are you gay? Here's a story about a gay man. There's nothing in the music like that, it's just, there's no vocals, it's just purely noise. But all the titles are very gee, they're very gee. But it's like you don't listen to that and become gay. You don't listen to that and become a gayman, a gayman. <laughs> it's just it's art, and it's actually. And he's 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 married now. He's married to a man. He's a real gayman, who I assume he really did some of those things. I assume that in in I assume that he really was going to Texas bathhouses. At the very least, he was involved with men because he is a gayman. And that's kind of what makes his art compelling is that he is a gay, he was a geeman in Texas doing all of this very raw and aggressive noise music that's themed around hardcore gay lifestyle, hardcore gay lifestyle. And that makes it art. It's interesting. And you can listen to that and appreciate it 
and you're not magically transformed into a gemon. Somebody might be uncomfortable with it. I think there are a lot of people out there who'd be like, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know that I want to own this. For me, I don't care. You know, for me, like, as I've said a million times, it's like, what about consuming art means you have to identify with it? What about watch? It's like watching a movie. People seem to understand movies a lot more than they understand music. People have this, there's something strange about music where people think or sound, you know, obviously this isn't traditional music, but there's something about sound and music that makes people feel like you're endorsing it by listening to it or owning it. And people are way more prone to censoring that sort of material. Like I always use movies as an example because people pretty much accept that horror movies don't reflect the viewer. Most people, let's just go with libs. Let's go with liberals. Most liberals I know love horror movies. Most of the huge horror movies, horror movie fans I know are liberals. And they'll never accuse somebody of endorsing the stalking rape and murder of young women, even though a lot of horror movies involve that. A lot of horror movies seem to involve stalking, raping, and killing women. But they seem to understand that you can watch that, even obsessively. You can even collect horror movies. And that doesn't reflect who you are as a person. They seem to understand that. But when it comes to music or other forms of art, but music in particular, people think that it's a reflection of the listener, which is very strange to me. It's strange that there is that disconnect. And on one level, I, I kind of understand it. I can kind of understand it because there's something about music that speaks to the spirit. But something speaking to the spirit doesn't necessarily reflect who a person is in their waking life. Like, even though when I was very interested in true crime, and by the way, I'm, I'm trying to get rid of a lot of my true crime books. I never expected that to happen. But as I'm going through things, I was looking at some of my serial killer books, and I was just like, I'm never going to read that again. You know, some of them I'm not going to get rid of. There's some that I want to keep for whatever reason. But I was looking at some of them, and, you know, I, I had a book about the I-5 killer. He was a professional football player. There we go. There's a tie-in. It's all connected. He was a professional football player who they believed that his career, you know, he was drafted way late. He probably didn't have a career. You know, or rather he probably wouldn't have had a career anyway. But he was a he was addicted to flashing people, exposing his his genitals. His gentles. His gentiles. He was he was addicted to exposing his gentiles to people. And they believe he was doing that in Wisconsin. He was from the Pacific Northwest. He was from Portland, and where he was flashing his Gentiles to people too. But they believe he was doing that. He got drafted by the Green Bay Packers, and they believe he was doing that there as well. And then he, he returned to the Pacific Northwest after his football career was over, where he began robbing, raping, and killing. But I read that book, and it was a fascinating book. 
It's easy to get too. But I gave it to my friend. I was just like, I'm never going to read that again. I'm never going to be at a place in my life where I sit down and I'm like, I need to reread this book about the I-5 killer. And it was very easy just to get rid of it. Because I do feel like I exhausted that subject. You know, sometimes you think to yourself, oh, I'm done with that. But then like, you know, a year or two later, you find, oh, you know, I'm not done with that. I'm still interested in that thing. I don't think that's true for me and serial killers. I do feel that I'm truly done with that subject. Not that I'll never talk about it again. Not that I'll never pay attention to it at all. But the days of needing to, like, the idea of rereading a book about a serial killer I've already read, it just seems incredibly indulgent, and I can't see myself doing it. But anyway, even that, like, reading that stuff, people kind of understand. And young women these days love that stuff. Like all of the young women I know, not young, but under the age of 40 or older too. Like I think about my mom and she was, she watched tons of those cold case file shows like every single night, just about. And every younger woman I know listens to true crime podcasts. And they know more about murderers these days than most of the young men out there. It's true. And they won't judge you for it. Like, it used to be you'd get weird comments. Like, when I was younger and people found out that I read a lot about serial killers, people would make that incredibly original joke. Oh, maybe you're a serial killer. Oh, you read books about serial killers? Maybe you're a serial killer. People would make that incredible joke. People don't make that joke anymore because it's just part of pop culture. It's Even though it was then, too. But it's become so ingrained, especially, I mean, and things get, you know, it's a thing. It's, it's kind of like Christian, it's kind of like Christianity in Scandinavia, where Scandinavia became Christianized through the women. Like Vikings would go sail off to other areas and they would come back and find that their wives had converted to Christianity. And guess what? The wives converted to Christianity. The culture is going to convert to Christianity. Women have a lot more power than people realize. Same thing for serial killers. Women being so obsessed with serial killers these days has normalized it to where young men aren't going to be accused of being serial killers because they study it, because they're fascinated by it. It's just interesting to see that play out. But people kind of understand that like that's something you're interested in. And then on the fictional side, people understand that horror movies, you know, obviously there's an entertainment side, but they also understand it's a form of art. They also understand it's a form of experience, that it's an illusion. But when it comes to music, for some reason, people draw a much firmer line. And as I'm selling things online, you know, I'd never used Discogs. I'd bought like five things on there over the years I'd never sold a single thing, and right now I'm selling a few things. Most of the things I, you know, I've tried to sell, there's no issues, but I did look up something, and Discogs refuses to sell it. And you can guess what the subject matter is. But it's interesting to me that they would draw a line about that. You can sell Cannibal Corpse. You can sell a Cannibal Corpse CD like it's nothing. You can sell albums about raping and killing women. You can sell gore grind albums. You can sell death metal albums. But if it involves World War II subject matter, 
and it isn't framed in a certain way or it's framed in the wrong way, you can't sell that. Because the powers that be have decided that certain subject matter is completely off limits and shouldn't exist, shouldn't be allowed to exist, shouldn't enter the marketplace. It makes an assumption about why somebody's consuming that. It makes an assumption about what it even is. But yet you can sell an album that is told through the point of view of a raping murderer. But if it hits it, if it hits upon something that is socially or politically inconvenient, you can't do it. Just interesting. And music in particular really brings that out of people. And it kind of it, it kind of goes into the mafia thing as well, because you know I, I'm taking a little break from it because I put so much time into it last month. But you know, writing about the mafia and talking about the mafia, I make it clear that I don't feel the need to say these guys are bad. And you know what? I don't think all of it is bad. As a phenomenon that developed in a certain part of the world in rural Sicilian villages who were subject to invasion by foreigners from Africa and Europe, like just look up the history of Sicily sometime. You want to talk about rape and pillage? You know, foreign invaders were just coming and going. The Greeks, all kinds of people coming and going. Mainland Italians, Italians, you know, it, you know, Sicily was really tossed around, pushed around a lot. You can kind of understand why a very vicious subculture and secret society developed there of all places. Not that I think it's a good thing. Not that I think it's a good thing that that vicious secret society and subculture transplanted itself to other parts of the world where it kills people and hurts people who don't fault who don't do what they say basically not that i think that's a good thing but you can kind of understand how it developed and when you talk about it even in america today and you talk about murders and you talk about extortion and crime why do i need to say just so you know this is bad just so you know i don't approve of this i don't approve of murder I don't approve of murder. I don't approve of extortion. I'm saying it right now, but I don't feel that when I'm talking about murder or extortion or people who commit murder or extortion, that I'm obligated to say anything about that. Because you should be able to understand whether it's good or bad. If I'm talking about a group of mafia members who killed somebody... You should be able to decide whether it's good or bad. And there's a certain context, which is sometimes the mafia kills its own members. That's usually who they kill. Sometimes they kill innocent people, they, which is, you know, that speaks for itself. But I don't really care. And, and a lot of people didn't, you know, law enforcement didn't care. For many years, law enforcement kind of turned a blind eye when mafia members would kill their own. Because to be part of the mafia is to follow their rules. And one of their rules is that you die if you don't follow the rules. 
or if you don't do the right thing within their society and subculture. So I don't even need to moralize that. But I wouldn't anyway. I wouldn't feel the need anyway because you should be able to figure that out on your own. You should have a, a you should be attuned enough to right and wrong that you can read about somebody doing something and draw your own conclusion about whether it's right or wrong or maybe nothing. Maybe you don't even need to draw a conclusion. Maybe you can read about it and not have to react in any way whatsoever. Is there anything wrong with that? If you read about something and you have no reaction whatsoever, what crime is being committed? What crime are you committing? Even if it's about something horrible. Like, let's say you're reading about a subject and you read about somebody doing a horrible crime to an innocent person. And in that moment, not that you don't care in general about things that happen to innocent people, but in that moment when you're reading about that subject or that event, you don't respond personally, in, inwardly. What crime are you committing? By maintaining your equanimity in that moment, you're not committing any crime. But we've been conditioned to think that we need to react continuously, and we need to moralize and we need to, to denounce. And I've, I've mentioned this before, but you see it, I noticed it when I was a kid, whenever the subject of pedophiles or child killers would come up, where people would feel the need to make these pronouncements. And I would see it in particular from grown men. Whenever the subject of pedophiles or, or child killers would come up, grown men would make these statements where they'd be like, yeah, well, if I got a hold of him, I'd hang him upside down by his toes, and then I, I'd, uh, I'd take a million little needles, and I'd stick them in his eyeballs. I'd turn him into a human pincushion, and then I'd put headphones on his head and blast music that he'd hate. Like, people would just start talking about the way that they would torture a pedophile, an audiophile. Oh, if I, you know what, if I found out that an audiophile did something to my kid, I'd take the worst freaking audio equipment and I'd stick him in a tiny room with poor acoustics and I'd blast the worst music, the most scratched up CD. I'd take a really scratched up CD that just skips. It sounds like, sounds like Fatboy Slim. And I'd play that over and over again. You know, people would make these pronouncements. And I understand it on one level. Because we all know that that's horrible. We all know crimes against innocence are horrible. But it was always interesting to me as a kid. Because I noticed that certain types of people and certain subjects would bring that out of people. Where... On one hand, it's like, yeah, I understand the idea of somebody doing something to a child is horrible. It's like me a minute ago talking about these laboratory tests, that these Fauci-sponsored laboratory tests that were done to dogs, done on dogs. Like, I have the same sort of response to that. You know, I, I have the same sort of response that people have when they talk about things that 
have happened to children, that the horrible people have done to children. But there's a part of people's response to that, and I, I don't know that I had words for it as a kid, but I noticed it when I was very young, where I was like, this isn't even about the thing. The way this person is responding, it isn't even actually about pedophiles. It seems to be this person's way of moralizing and letting people know that they themselves don't condone that, which should be implied. It should be implied. It's almost, you know, I'm not going to say that people who do that are secretly pedophiles. Like when someone goes out of their way to be like, yeah, well, let me tell you what. If I got my hands on that pedophile, I'd tear every single one of his eyelashes out in the most painful way possible. And I'd plug his nose with a clothespin. And I'd clean his ears with the Q-tip. And then I just jam the Q-tip into his ear really far. So I shatter, I, I rupture his eardrum. You know, when people talk like that, um, <laughs> it's, it's weird because it's like, it, I, I realized at a young age, I guess, that they were kind of posturing. Like they're trying to let you know that they're a good person. It's virtue signaling. I mean, that's what it is. Like people talk about virtue signaling today in this highly specific context where they're like, oh yeah, you know, virtue signaling. It's when someone says like, believe all women. You know, it's that kind of thing. But there's so many different forms of it. And that's what that is. When people go on and on about how much they detest pedophiles or audiophiles, what they're doing is they're actually trying to communicate to you, not that they hate pedophiles so much, they're trying to let you know that they're a good, virtuous person. And, so, and we all do that. That's a thing. Like, we all do that. We all feel the need to kind of define ourselves in that way. But I think you should catch yourself. Especially if you're covering a certain subject. I mean, it goes back to traditional journalism where the idea is that by covering this subject, you should not editorialize unless it is an editorial. There's a reason why there was an editorial section in newspapers, because an editorial is taking an event or a situation and giving an opinion on it. It's your pedestal. Like if you are an editorialist, The editorial section is a way for you to stand on your pedestal and say, this is how I feel about it, and this is why this is bad, or this is good. But actual coverage should not have that. Like, if you're writing an article about a drunk driver, the article shouldn't say, did you know that this guy was an asshole because he was driving drunk and he hit this kid? You know, the article shouldn't say that because the reader should be able to come to that conclusion on their own. But there's very little of that now. And in mainstream journalism, there's more editorialization than there is objective coverage. And you could argue there's never been true objectivity, and I would agree with that. I think as human beings, it's almost impossible to ever achieve true objectivity. But if you veer in that direction, you're at least a little better off. Everybody's a little better off. But a lot of this stuff, it comes from the point of view that people are stupid which I always come back to because that's where so much of this comes back to. Like, 
when somebody censors music, when they say that you can't sell this type of music on here, it's because the assumption is you're too stupid. You're too stupid to be able to buy this. You're too stupid to be able to contextualize this. You're too stupid to experience this. That, that says, this, if you want to like distill that down to its core idea, you're too stupid to experience this. Which is sort of what parents are saying to their kids when they don't let them watch a movie. Oh yeah, you're too stupid to watch that movie. And, you know, it, it, sound, it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but that's kind of what parents are saying when they tell their kid they can't watch a certain movie. Oh, you can't watch an R-rated movie because you're too stupid. Which is sort of what being young is, and they're right. Kids are very young, and we equate youth with stupidity because kids kind of are stupid. Kids are learning. When you're new, you're learning. So you're kind of stupid in that way. So I understand why parents aren't just letting their kids watch hardcore porn. I understand why you wouldn't let your five-year-old watch Jason Goes to Hell. I understand that. But at least admit the reason is the kid is too stupid to watch it. But we do that now to everybody about everything. Yet not. Yet not, yet not, every, not, not to everybody about everything. We say that you can watch a horror movie where you will be entertained by the fact that a mean guy is trying to rape and kill. He's trying to rape and kill. You're allowed to watch that. But if there's a, if there's a swastika, well, we might not let you watch that. And if we do, we have to denounce it. We have to, we have to put a disclaimer. Or we have to make it so explicitly clear that that's bad that it actually distracts from the entire art of it. So, you know, that's the world we're living in, where you're too stupid to know what this is all about. You're too stupid to contextualize this on your own. Or you're too bad. Because that's kind of built in, too, which is equated with stupidity. The idea is that if you're a bad person, you're also stupid. Because that's kind of the idea is that like, oh, the only type of person who would want to experience this is bad. That's why we need to censor it. The only type of, and that goes for ideas as well. Oh, the only type of person who would want to discuss this, who would want to read this book, who would want to hear this idea explored, the only type of person who would want to even hear that idea is either so stupid or bad or the person who's going to say it is so bad and the audience is so stupid that we just have to put a stop to it. It's fundamentally misanthropic, and it's actually more misanthropic than the thing that is being censored. And this goes back to evangelical Christians wanting to censor Harry Potter. The idea is, oh, people are, t- are so stupid... This thing is so evil that people shouldn't be allowed to watch it. Anything that hints at magic or witchcraft is so evil that people shouldn't be allowed to watch it. These are placeholder words, but the essence is the same. The word race today, the word racist, means evil. When people say that someone is racist, 
What they're saying is, we think that person is evil. What they mean, what they intend when they say that is no different than just good and evil. And the reason why people have widened the definitions of these things, the reason why Colin Kaepernick is saying that competing for a multi-million dollar position in the NFL is slavery is because he just wants to say the NFL is evil, but he can't say that. That word means nothing. Like if Colin Kaepernick came out and said, oh yeah, the NFL, it's evil. People would just laugh. They'd be like, oh yeah, he lost his starting position and he, he stirred up a bunch of drama. And so teams didn't want him on their team. Teams didn't want him on their team. And so he's calling the NFL evil. They would just laugh him off. But because the new word for evil, one of the new words is racist, he can say, well, no, actually the NFL's racist. And allowing young men to compete to earn millions of dollars and be among the most celebrated human beings on the planet, it's like slavery. Oh, yeah, you know that horrible institution that didn't pay anybody anything? And forced people to work themselves to death and die in obscurity. It's totally like this massive industry that pays men a billion dollars to play a game. Gives them so many endorsement deals. Allows them to live in... You know, allows them to enter the pantheon. You know forever. I mean, I know the names of NFL players who retired decades before I even watched football because guys enter a pantheon totally like slavery. You know, I know that's an annoying point to keep making. It's so obvious. And I, I would imagine anybody who hears this would know. But still, it's, it's he just wants to call the NFL evil. But he has to use the new lexicon. And the definition is really the same. And it's a highly subjective definition, yet it's incredibly wide. The definition is incredibly wide. But just remember that. These are all placeholder words. Like anytime somebody has come up with some new Anytime some academic institution comes up with some new phrase that's used to describe a certain type of person, just remember, they're just trying to find a new word for evil. And it's not that good and evil don't exist. Like, when a pedophile does do something to a child, I think that qualifies as evil. But I don't assume that my audience is so stupid they don't understand that. Like, if I were just to say, oh, yeah, a guy down the street kidnapped a child and did something horrific to them. I don't think that my listener is so stupid that I need, I need to tell them that's evil. I might do it. I might editorialize because we all do that. Like, when I'm talking about the dogs, when I'm talking about these tests that are being done to dogs in the name of science, I might say it's horrible. I might editorialize a little bit. But I don't think that the listener needs to hear that from me. I don't think that they need me to contextualize 
why I'm almost going to say it, but I'm not going to say what they do to these dogs. If you're interested, look it up. But still, it's like, I don't need to say why that's evil. I don't even need to call it evil because you should be able to figure that out on your own. And it, it goes for all of this stuff. And uh, just to go back, just to circle back to that tape I was talking about, it's it's for the same reason that listening to a tape by a gayman about gee stuff doesn't make the listener gee. It's it's neither an endorsement nor a criticism of being gee. It's art. It's aesthetically interesting. I find it aesthetically interesting that this geeman in Texas made explicit hardcore gee-themed noise music and still does. But I don't need to make a judgment of any kind about that. I'm either interested or I'm not. Somebody else could do the same exact thing, but I wouldn't find it compelling. I mean, look at death metal. 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 How many bands have just covered the same exact subject matter over and over and over again? Every single one, just about. Outside of the death metal bands who try to be creative or weird... Most of them have just covered the same subject matter over and over again, which is why it's called death metal. Which is why it's called death metal. It's why it's called death metal. Uh, It's why it's called death metal. You know, it's it's why it's called death metal. (laughs) You know? Why is some of it good and some of it not? Because some of it's compelling. Some of it's original. Some of it's interesting. And you want to experience it. And maybe for reasons that have nothing to do with the subject matter. Like I know that back when I was a teenager getting into death metal. I didn't really find even though that's an interesting thing actually. Because even though I was interested in serial killers and true crime. I wasn't drawn to the subject matter of death metal. I was drawn to the music. I was drawn to the style of music. The, the performance, the writing, just the aesthetic itself. But I was never actually that intrigued by the subject matter. I thought the subject matter was actually fairly juvenile. It didn't give me chills in the same way that reading a book about a serial killer does. It wasn't cerebrally interesting in the sense that true crime itself is. But there was something about the expression to get artsy about it, but there was something about the expression that I found compelling sometimes. Sometimes. It wasn't like I was like, oh, this band is singing. And it's true for any subject. The same thing for this geeman. This Texas geeman. Where he made explicit gay noise music. And he did it in a compelling way. But somebody else could and other people have there are other people who have tried to mimic that and it sucks it sucks because that's just the nature of art it's the nature of expression 
is that some people create a compelling product and other people don't, which is why I love and hate it so much. It's why I love the things I love and hate the things I hate. Because some people create a compelling product and others don't. And sometimes I'm sometimes I find the product compelling because of its subject matter or in part because of its subject matter without endorsing it or feeling any personal connection whatsoever. Like you can listen to a Nazi band without endorsing it, but it shouldn't matter if you do endorse it either. You know, it shouldn't matter what your motivation is. But the fact is, is that nobody can guess your motivation. Nobody can tell you what you find compelling or not compelling about it. Just like this gay album, (laughs) you know? It's like nobody can tell you what you find compelling about it or not compelling. Nobody can tell you why you like the things you like or why you think somebody is talented at what they do. And art exists in a special place. (laughs) Art exists in a special place. It, It does, though, because it is not a crime. Art is actually the absence of crime. Do artists sometimes do bad things in their daily life, in their real life? Sure. But you see that all the time from people who... You see that all the time from people who do and say the right things. I mean, that's incredibly common. I mean, you look at the Hollywood rape industry. You look at the Weinstein guy. The Weinstein guy. You look at him. I mean, he was a Democrat Hillary supporter. Supported the right causes. Look what he did. Look what he was up to. Look at what all these people are up to. Someone can create art that that satisfies everybody's... um, Somebody could create art that says and does all of the right things based on what's considered morally acceptable in a given culture at the time. But they might be doing the worst things behind closed doors. And somebody might be creating art that does all of the wrong things morally. It uses highly immoral subject matter. And as a person, they might be doing nothing wrong, but it shouldn't matter either way. That should never actually be the argument. That should never even be part of the argument, and it should be up to the individual whether or not they find it compelling or not. Because you don't really choose that. You don't really choose what you find compelling. You don't choose what you find interesting. And when you live in a world where people are trying to tell you what you should find compelling or what you should find interesting, well, they're asking you to be dishonest. They're saying that just living in a mirage like we live in as human beings isn't enough. The artifices that we already maintain just to be living and breathing human beings in a society, those aren't enough. You can't actually like anything for its own sake. You can't find anything interesting for its own sake. You can only like these things. You can only think this way. 
basically they're trying to deny you any and all honest interpretation. They're trying to deny you any and all honest experience. And they're asking you to live a dishonest life. And it might sound like I'm being dramatic. And guess what? I'm not. I'm not. I'm actually not dramatizing this. People have no idea what they're doing. Some of them do. But a lot of them don't. A lot of them really are just driving with their headlights off. Not because they're stupid. They've just gotten accustomed to it. Hitting the vape here. Hitting the vape here? The vape here? Whew. This stuff isn't getting better. You know, I've been so busy lately that I haven't been focused on it as much. But it's not getting better. But, you know, I'm still of the philosophy I was talking about a couple of weeks ago where I'm like, at this point, I just say, let them destroy everything. I have myself. I have my own integrity. The people I love have their integrity. You can't take that away from somebody. So let them destroy everything. Let them say that the NFL is just like slavery. Let them say it. I can just stop watching it. You know, and it's not going to ruin football for me, you know, or anything like that. But it's like, let them ruin it. I'll move on. You know, part of what I was talking about in the last episode about recognizing that this is all a mirage is letting people twist that mirage into, it's like a balloon animal. (laughs) You know, people are twisting the world around us into all these different shapes like a balloon animal. And your natural reaction, if you have integrity, your natural reaction to that is be like, don't twist it that way. That's unnatural. That's stupid. Because that's how I feel about a lot of it. My response to so many of these things is just, that's stupid. You made it look stupid. That's a stupid shape. That's an unnecessary shape. That's not a natural shape. It's not a compelling shape. But let them do it. Because you don't want to be in a position where you're spending all of your time being like, don't don't turn the balloon animal into that. Which is a lot of what you see from Republicans. It's a lot of what you see from conservative pundits. Where a lot of their energy is spent on, dude, you you got mad at us when we tried to make that shape. And now you're trying to make that shape. Dude, if if you let them if you if you don't stop the Democrats, they're gonna turn the balloon animal into the dumbest shape you ever saw. And it's like it's remember that it's fake. It's a balloon animal. And eventually they'll twist it into so many weird and stupid shapes that it'll just pop. And the unfortunate part about that is they ruin a lot of things. And there's a lot of pain. They create a lot of pain. But it turns out a lot of different types of people with a lot of different beliefs 
are all trying to turn that balloon. They're all trying to turn the balloon into all kinds of different stupid shapes that don't even look like the animal they say it is. Because I think that's the most offensive part of all is that these people who are making the balloon animals are like, look, it's a squirrel. And you're like, it doesn't even look like a squirrel. And you're like, but it is. And you're like, no, it is, it's not. And your gut reaction is to pop it. And I would say don't pop it because they're going to pop it. And it'll be, you're far better off with them popping it on its own. Just remember that, that all it is is a balloon. When they make culture go in this direction or that direction, when they try to force society into this shape or that shape, yeah, it might suck. And maybe the previous shape sucked too, which is why they're doing it. But don't forget that it's just a balloon. Don't forget that they're just messing around with a balloon. And maybe, you know, your life is that too. Maybe you're doing that with your own life. But, you know, just do what you can with your own balloon, I guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of... I need to get rid of... <laughs> I need to get, get out of this balloon animal topic. But that's kind of how I see it at this point. People fighting over balloon animals. And they all look like clowns because they are. So let them just do it. Let them destroy it. Let them twist everything into all kinds of different shapes. It's never going to be cool. It's never going to be permanent. It's never going to be meaningful. But I would, you know, I would say know what hills matter to you. You know, for me personally, you know, I do take a stand with certain issues. Obviously, free speech is one of those. Telling me what to do is one of those. You know, because anytime somebody tells you, you shouldn't even own that. You shouldn't even watch that. You shouldn't even read that. That's a problem for me. And I won't let them twist that. I won't let somebody come to me and tell me what to do or not do. That's where I draw a line. Even though that too is part of this mirage, I'm still living in the mirage. I don't have a choice. I'm a, I'm a human being. I'm still living in the mirage. So even within the mirage, even, even when you understand that it's all a mirage, you still have to have some kind of boundary. You still have to have some kind of limit. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything. It doesn't mean you should never stand up for anything. But it's kind of like what I've said before about, you know, sometimes other people doing something or saying something means you don't have to do it. And maybe you should support them. Maybe you should back them up. But you don't necessarily need to echo exactly what they're saying. And maybe by somebody else saying or doing something so that you don't have to, it frees you up to add another thought to the conversation. Maybe you can contribute in a way that is more unique to you. I 
And I think that's a dilemma that we're all living with is that, you know, we've been raised in this culture to believe that we all have, if not the opportunity and potential, we have the expectation to make a unique contribution. But the reality is some of us don't. Some of us have nothing unique to offer. And part of life is kind of accepting that. You know, I was talking about getting rid of just old CDRs and tapes and things. Like looking up three-inch CDRs that somebody made in 2004. And looking it up on Discogs and being like, oh, nobody will buy this even for 50 cents, a dollar. Some guy wanted to do this. Some guy thought by making this, he was going to express himself in some way even if he didn't feel it was truly unique his motivation was that maybe i will play a part in this and 20 years later a guy like me is looking through his stuff and is just like this is i can't even give this away you think about dollar bins i mean i used to go to half price books at least once a week and they had a big bin where you could buy cds for a dollar to three dollars and you'd find really good stuff you'd also find goofy stuff that you might just buy you're like this is a dollar i'm gonna buy this because i'm gonna listen to it once on my way home and it might entertain me for a little bit and you know what i might even like it or maybe it's goofy maybe i'll buy it as a joke i remember going to half price books with my girlfriend and like being like oh i'm gonna buy this stupid cd for a dollar because Maybe it'll make us laugh on the way home. But you think about the dollar bin and you look in the dollar bin and there's a reason why it is what it is. There's a reason why most of that stuff is absolute garbage. There's a reason why they're practically giving it away. But a lot of those people thought that they were doing something. They thought they were contributing something unique in some way even if they were just tricking themselves, or even if they were just copying somebody else. You can just tell from the way it looks half the time, probably more than half the time. You can take one look at something in the dollar bin, some promo, some promo CD by a local band. And it's just like, how did this person not think what they were doing was crap? And probably deep down they knew it, but they did it anyway. Because they wanted to make some kind of unique contribution. And who are you to tell somebody not to do it? Like, I used to think it was more my place to do that. I used to think it was my place to tell people what to do and what not to do. And I think part of that is just being a young man. And I, I'm still doing that. You know, it's not like you can ever escape that. But part of that is being a young man. Like, oh, that sucks and you shouldn't do it. One time I heckled this band so severely. A friend of mine joined some band and she, she played the keyboards in some band when I was in high school. And uh, it was like a, I don't even know. It was like a screamo band that couldn't play their instruments. And she was, you know, part of my friend group. So we went to her show and there was an opening band that, from another high school who we didn't know. And I just decided, oh, I'm going to heckle them. And I wasn't typically a heckler, but I felt inspired and I didn't say, like, you guys suck. I just said a bunch of shit to them. 
I, I just I said it was stupid shit that makes me cringe today, but I, I just said stupid shit. Like I said, it wasn't mean stuff. It wasn't like you guys suck and should go home. You know what would make your music compelling? Hardcore gay themes. It's not like I was saying anything like that. Although the last one's probably closer to the truth, but uh, I just heckled the hell out of them. Heckled the hell out. Of, I heckled the heck out of them. You know why they call it heckling? Because it's what people do in hell. Heck. <laughs> you know. They, you know why they call it heckling? Because it's what people do in heck. It's everybody just heckling each other. Uh, but I remember seeing them afterward. Like I could tell that I ruined their set. Like nobody cared about them. They were a bunch of high schoolers just playing a shitty concert. But I saw them loading up their gear afterward. And they were kind of talking amongst themselves. And I could tell that it, I had an effect on them. Like I saw them loading up a van or a, a, a car with their gear. And they looked so dejected. And I, I felt horrible, actually. I was like, oh, shit. I thought I was just screwing around. And it's not like I talked throughout their entire set. I probably said three things. But it was enough. But in the moment, I felt justified. I felt like being an asshole. And I wouldn't do that again. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't do that again. I never, you know, I never did that any other times. I did that once. And I remember doing it because it's like, oh, yeah... In the moment, I didn't feel like an asshole, but when I saw these kids with their slumped shoulders, when I saw their body language loading up their gear, I was like, oh, I didn't need to do that. <laughs> and uh, when I was younger, though, I used to feel the need to do things like that more often. I used to feel the need to tell people when things sucked. I felt the need to be a critic. Whereas now I'm just kind of like, when something sucks, it's just easy to not care. It's easy to not pay attention. And I feel like we're living in a different world too. You know, because like when someone says they're a musician today, it means nothing. Everybody has an acoustic guitar in their closet. I mean, if that, you think about the number of kids who make, I mean, people can make electronic music on their phone. Like it's like paint by numbers. It's so easy to make a beat in some app and people respond accordingly. Well, you know, some of that stuff becomes popular, I guess. Some of that stuff does something. The easier it is to do something, the easier it is to just let go of it and dismiss it. Easy come, easy go. But the less meaningful and valuable it is too. And so I think part of that is just the world doing what it does. But, uh, you know, looking through old CDs and realizing that, oh, the only thing I can do with these is throw them out. I can't even sell these as a lot. I can't even sell these as a dollar bin lot. And it's not worth packaging them up. It's not worth, it's not worth wasting money on shipping. And when I look at stuff like that, I'm just like, that was a different world. Even though people are still trying to make, even though people are still trying to carve out their niche or attach themselves to a niche that somebody else has carved out. You know, I look back on music culture in particular, 
And I'm just like, huh, you know, I don't think that'll happen again anytime soon. I feel like I only caught the fumes of it myself. Not to say people won't still make things and they're still making things. But that was a period in time. And it's over. And I do think, even though I don't assign too much weight to the last year and a half, two years, there's no doubt that it's done something to push things even further. There's no question that the age of the coronavi has helped end that. You know, it's, it's helped kind of put a punctuation mark at the end of all that. And when I think about the time period when I was a teenager. That does feel like a bygone era. And I and imagine everybody feels that way. But you can only truly understand it when you yourself reach a point where you've experienced it. It's like I was talking about with death, like the death of a parent. You can hear somebody talk about their mom dying. You can hear me talk about it. But unless you've experienced that, you don't know what that is. And your experience might be totally different, but it'll be similar in some ways too, because the fact is the fact. When you lose somebody, you lose them. Even if your relationship to that person was different than mine, that person was different, you're different than I am, it's still an experience. And I feel like I'm kind of going through that now with some of this stuff that was a part of my youth, where it's not that I don't care about it, But I guess it's just becoming more apparent what parts of it still matter and what don't. And the bigger picture of it, which is that very little of it matters. A lot of it was just a bubble. And... uh, I don't, I don't I don't want to just revisit the entire last episode here but like a bubble like a bubble you know you can tell it's there you can see it you can see a reflection even though it's clear <laughs> this is stupid but you can see that something is there but uh it's not much There's not much there. It is just this thin film covering things. It is things that are just kind of resting inside of this very sensitive, very temporary little capsule. Little capsule. But I'm curious what's going to happen because culture doesn't die. new things become relevant. And, you know, I was talking to my friend Jason maybe a year or two ago, and we were talking about this subject. He's older than I am, I believe. I believe he's a few years older than I am. He's a lawyer. And he's way more into, like, he's still very much into, like, collecting music and going to concerts and that kind of thing. So I differ from him in that way, but our perspective is very similar, too. And we were talking about a piece of writing a friend of ours published 
about the superior the superiority of older underground culture, like the analog print-based media, the material world that we all came up in that impressed us so much, that impressed itself upon us so much, and that was better. Material objects were better, in my opinion. Obtaining music that you can hold and listen to that had a certain aesthetic quality even if it was crude, even if it was Xeroxed, there was something superior about it. And I think even people who came of age much later recognize that too, because I can see where they themselves are trying to recreate it, even though it's almost impossible. But he and I were talking about it, and he made a comment that, you know, maybe we are just old now. You know, maybe we are out of touch. And maybe those things that we observed earlier in our lives, those things that impressed themselves upon us, you know, maybe we are just not connected to the things that younger people have a relationship to. And he used the example of electronic music and hip hop. And he was saying, you know, there are things going on in electronic music and hip hop. There is innovation taking place. And I wouldn't deny that, but I don't know about it. And when I hear it, I'm not impressed. And I don't know that that's purely an old guy thing. Because I, I come across a lot of old guys who do get impressed by new stuff. Like, what was I paying attention to? I've noticed lately everything I listen to is guys a generation or so older than me talking about classic rock. And to me, the lowest form of conversation is like, did you ever hear about what Jimmy Page did? Like rock star lore is the lowest form of conversation to me. And a lot of it's fake. You might as well believe in Santa Claus. Like when you hear people talk about like, oh, did you know like the Rolling Stones did this in a hotel room? I just hear, did you hear about the time Santa Claus came down the chimney? Like, even if it happened, it didn't happen in the way that you think it happened. It didn't look and feel the way that you think it looked and felt for the people who were there. But something I noticed those types of guys do, and I, I heard one of them the other day, and I'm trying to think of who it was, it doesn't even matter. It was an older comedian. It might have been Adam Carolla. Might have been somebody like that, but they were talking about somebody and they were like, yeah, gee, there's a new band. Like they were talking about Led Zeppelin, who I'm not a fan of. Of course, they're good. Of course, Led Zeppelin was good at what they did. I recognize that. It's not like I'm an idiot who's going to be like, did you know Led Zeppelin sucks? It's not like I'm going to say that, but I, I was never a fan of Led Zeppelin. It's kind of like a Beatles and Stones thing. Where like some people, there was that line drawn in the sand where some people were a Beatles person, some people were a Stones person. It's kind of like that with Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, where I do feel like there's Black Sabbath people and Led Zeppelin people. It's like, well, I like them both. I like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. I like Led Zeppelin. Yeah, of course, some people do. A lot of people do. But there is, I think there is a different, I think the tree does branch in different directions when it comes to those bands. And I don't feel like you can truly be a Black Sabbath person and love Led Zeppelin. <laughs> I sound like one of those guys now. I don't feel like you can be a Black Sabbath person and a Led Zeppelin person at the same time. But um, 
But it was somebody like that, like some older comedian who was like, I I saw an interview with Robert Plant and he was talking about how he was introduced to this new band who sounds like Led Zeppelin and he was like, they're even better than we were. And there's a certain sort of old guy who gets into like new bands who sound like old bands, but the reality is they don't. Like it happened to me, I was at a bar in my hometown, one of the few times I've drank in my hometown. And I think I told the story on here because there was a guy, Joey88, this rocker, this like 80s rocker who was probably 20 years older than I am, close to 20 years older. No, actually, he would be 16 years older because he graduated from my high school in 1988. And I graduated from there in 2004. But I was talking to him at this bar because he was just this old rocker. And you never see anybody who looks like that in Kirkland. And you never see anybody who still looks like that in Kirkland. Even though Queensryche, Queensryche isn't from Kirkland. They're from Bellevue, which is the next town over. Same thing, basically. But uh, there is some older credibility with that stuff in that area. There were some Seattle metal bands and stuff who were good. Not very many, but there were a few. But I was talking to this old guy who I just I nicknamed Joey88. Because I was just drunk off my ass in this. It was a place called Asian Walk. It's like this old Chinese restaurant that had been converted into a bar. And uh, talking to this guy, Joey88, his name, he's like, I'm Joey. And we were talking, he's like, I graduated high school in, from Lake Washington in, two, in, in 1988. And I was like, hey, I, I told my friend, I was like, get over here. This is Joey88. You got to meet this guy. It's being a drunk idiot. Dude, you got to meet this guy. He graduated from our high school in 1988. Can you believe that? But we were talking about music. And I think we talked about Black Sabbath and just some older bands and stuff. And he was like, I was, at, I was at this fair earlier this year, and there was a band there, dude, and they sound just like Sabbath. He's like, I'm going to go to my car. I have their CD in my car. And he comes in, and he, he, he convinces the, the bartender to put it on the jukebox, and he puts this new band that he heard at the, the, the fair on the jukebox because they sound like old bands, and it was awful. It was like a bar rock band. And you come across guys like that a lot who they were into good shit when good shit was new. Like this guy graduated high school in 1988 and he liked Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and Queensryche and Black Sabbath. That's cool. But that stuff was also common. And a lot of guys were rockers. And this guy, I like this guy. I I like Joey 88. But it it was just funny though, because it's like you come across that with a lot of guys from that generation where they're, They've gotten older, and on one hand, it's good that they're not completely jaded, but it's weird to me they're tricked. It's weird to me that they can hear a band who's vaguely influenced by Black Sabbath and Aerosmith and Soundgarden, you know, like this mishmash of crap, this mishmash of like good classics and crap. And the idea that like a guy like that can see them at the county fair and be like, they're just like the old stuff. Oh, dude, you got to hear them. I'm going to go get the CD out of my car. And he put it on the jukebox and it was it was fucking awful. Fucking awful. And that's not me. You know, that's definitely not me. But I'm hopefully not too jaded. I hope I'm not too jaded because I don't really care. But it's weird to me guys like that get tricked. It's weird to me that those people can see a band today who is new. They can see a band of 22-year-olds 
trying to sound like Led Zeppelin and be like, dude, he's, he's got his pipes sound just like Robert Plant's. Dude, I, if I didn't know better, I'd, I'd think this was Robert Plant's. If I didn't know better, I would think this was Robert Plant. Robert Plant. I'm just like, how do you get tricked by this crap? So the easiest thing to do is just kind of let it go. The easiest thing to do is just be like, yeah, you know what? That time is over. I'm not going to sit around tell. Like, I didn't tell him it sucked. You know, I have tact. I was blackout drunk. Now, I know that conversation, I was like two sips away from blacking out because I did black out that night. As I, as I did many nights in those days. But I was like two sips of beer away from blacking out. And I don't remember the walk home. We tied my friend's dog up on the railing outside the bar. Because we were on a walk. We weren't planning on going to the bar. I know this is an interesting story. But we tied my friend's dog up on the railing. And you could see the dog, okay? I'm not Dr. Fauci. We cared about the dog. And then, like, we... But we ended up getting completely wasted at the Asian walk talking to Joey 88 and we went outside and the dog had completely chewed through its leash and was just like loose but didn't run away which is thank goodness thank goodness but it was just funny to me because like I even though I was on the verge of blacking out I wasn't going to insult Joey 88 but that band was awful and it just it's it's a great example and like I mean that happens with people where it's like they just continue to be into things and it's weird to me that you could have grown up then and be into the classics and be tricked by new stuff. Stuff that's just a total mirage. A bubble on the surface of the stream, you know, because that's what that stuff is. And that's a Buddhist, you know, there's a Buddhist parable about that. It's a pretty obvious one. You know, I was talking about the bubble earlier. And, you know, the Buddhism uses that idea a lot to the point where it's kind of a cliche, but it's true. You know, Buddhism uses the idea that, like, we are all just bubbles floating on the surface of a stream, but it's true. And, uh, you know, so much of Buddhism is just contending with all the things I'm talking about, which is what led me to Buddhist, you know, Buddhist practices. (laughs) We're almost two hours in, I don't need to get into this, but... These realizations did lead me to certain Buddhist practices. The subject matter resonated with me for these reasons. Not because I wasn't drawn to Buddhism because I thought, Oh, I want to follow my bliss. I want to follow my bliss. Stupid voice. Couldn't tell what I was trying to do there. Wasn't quite British. As, As Joe has said. As... One of one of my friends and listeners, Joe in England, has she said uh, my English accent is terrible, which I'm kind of glad. I'm kind of glad my English accent is terrible, and she's English. She's British, so I her opinion should be taken seriously. But I couldn't. That wasn't really me trying to do a British accent. But anyway, uh, who cares? Um, you know, what led me to Buddhist ideas was actually just my negativity. And that's true for a lot of people who are into that. 
You know, we think of it as something where someone's like, oh, this is a way to feel good and be blissful. It's like, no, this is just a way to deal with morbid reality. This is a way to deal with disenchantment. This is a way to deal with hitting a wall and realizing that all of these things that I thought were institutions in my own life were just fleeting. And not that they suck or I don't care about them, but they weren't a source of meaning for me either. And I think some people pursue Buddhism and spirituality in general, thinking that that alone will provide them meaning. But I think it contextualizes meaning. And it helps you sort out what is meaningful to you and what's not. It doesn't necessarily give you that, because I don't know that anything can. Some people get it through becoming parents. Some people get it through... I mean, I've gotten meaning from some of the things that I'm talking about that are fleeting. Like being an artist, I've gotten a great deal of meaning through that, and I still do. Even though that's just another bubble on the stream, it matters to me. It's not that the bubbles don't matter. But it's just recognizing them for what they are and accepting that, because you'll lie to yourself. And I guess that's been the theme lately, is just not lying to myself. Not getting caught up in the great lie, but also not getting distracted by all of the much smaller lies that make up the great lie. But anyway, I'm going to wrap this one up here. A lot of different ideas. Just doing two-hour episodes is the way to do it. I feel pretty good, though. No, I actually feel pretty good. It's been cathartic to go through things. I've actually, you know, it's funny, getting rid of music, throwing some music out, throwing, and not just music, there's a lot of stuff here. I was going through children's books that my family's kept in a, a storage bin for decades. It's not just the things that matter to me it's just different objects different material because i love material again i love material objects i place material objects on a pedestal much higher than the digital world because that's what i value i value material things more in the same way like i don't understand nfts i've heard them explained i i truly do not understand why people are paying money for those i understand people who are using it as currency. I understand people who are trying to make money off of it, but I don't understand why you would pay money to collect them. I'm like, can't you just save the image? And no matter how many times I hear it explained, and I have heard it explained many times, I have no idea, I have no clue why you would pay money to own a digital image. And I, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't understand it at all. Like you can, can't you right click and save the image? Cause you don't own the rights to it. I found out. Like I found out that you don't own, like, it's not like you own the copyright to it in the sense that you can 
like loan it. It's it's like you don't own the copyrights to the image in the way that you do something you created. It's not like when someone buys the rights to music, because that's what I thought it was at first, and that made a lot more sense. Like I thought that an NFT was like the same as buying the rights to a song or a band's catalog, and now it's like you have the copyright. You can make executive decisions as to how it's used, and you can profit from that or loan it out. Turns out it's not like that at all. You just own a digital image that belongs to you. And I guess it's unique. I don't, I'm not entirely sure how that works. But it's not the same as like owning the copyright to a catalog or owning the copyright to an image. So I have no clue, honestly, what the appeal is. But I'm just like, huh, you know, can't you just screen cap it? And, you know, maybe I can kind of understand it in the sense that it's like it's like the difference between owning a bootleg versus an original. Like if you own a record, it feels better to own the original than even if somebody does a perfect bootleg and it sounds identical and it looks identical. It's high quality. Like I own a bootleg record. I own a lot of bootleg records, a number of them, not a lot, but I own some bootlegs for sure. Like I own a Dodheim's Guard album. I own I own the first Dodheim's Guard LP on vinyl, and I believe it's a bootleg, but it sounds fine to me, and it looks great. It doesn't bother me that, that it's a bootleg, but if given a choice, I would rather own the original. So maybe NFTs are like that in a certain way, where it's like it's just the idea of it. And that does kind of circle back to the the last episode, where a lot of collectability, a lot of memorabilia is just the idea of it. So maybe NFTs make sense with that in mind. But I guess I just don't see the value of digital media enough. Even though I defend digital media sometimes on here, and part of that's me rebelling against myself, but I do, you know, I'm I'm okay with digital media, but the idea of investing in it or putting it on a pedestal, I, I just, I don't completely understand that. Like I've never paid for an MP3. You know, when you started to be able to do that, I never did that. When you started to be able to do that, I never did that. Yeah, I never did, though. It was something I just, I didn't, I was like, I can probably get a copy of this some other way. And if I am going to pay for it, I'd rather just own a material copy. I think I, I probably have bought something on Bandcamp maybe once or twice. But even then, I kind of have the take of like, stuff that's on Bandcamp, you can just click it and play it. And even though it's nice to support the artist, unless I have a motivation to do that, I don't value it. And I have a Bandcamp page for my noise project. And I'm fine with people just playing it on there. Like, I didn't put that stuff up so people would pay me. It's nice when I get a couple bucks for it, the rare occasion that somebody buys it. But I didn't put it up there so that people would buy it. I put it up there because it it makes high-quality versions of material I've recorded available. And people can stream it. And that's kind of the whole... That's the reason I did it. People can stream this now. Um, but uh, I don't know. I guess I, I just... I never really saw the appeal of paying money for those sorts of things. But anyway, I'm going to close this out. I don't think I have any way to put a perfect bow on this. Just a lot of random thoughts. Whew.
I'm curious though. I mean, I guess that's what I have going for me. And I do feel good right now. I do feel like I'm doing what I need to be doing in my life for the most part. I've been doing a lot of work. And that's never a bad thing. But I am curious to see what comes of all this. I think that's why I feel okay about life in general, is I'm always intrigued by it. Even though interests come and go, even though passion comes and goes, even though cultural relevance comes and goes, and looking back at what I invested heavily in, like when I think about the level of investment I put into music, creativity, other people's music and creativity, not just my own. But when I look at that, and I think that's a bygone era, whether that's true or not, that's how I see it. But when I look at that, it doesn't make me sour because I'm very curious to see what people do with what we have now. And I know NFTs don't matter. I know Bandcamp doesn't matter. But I'm curious what is going to rise out of all that. And maybe I will just be Joey88. Maybe I will be Eric 2004. That's who I am, right? Some kid is going to meet me. I don't drink anymore. But maybe some kid is going to meet me and be like, this guy graduated from Lake Washington in 2004. I'm going to call him Eric 2004. You know, maybe that'll just be me and I'll be like, let me go get this CD from my car. It's a band I heard at the fair. Now, I don't think I'll be that guy, but you know, if, if that's how I end up, though, that's fine. You know, Joey 88, his life didn't seem too bad when I met him. He has kids. I think he's a single dad. He goes to the neighborhood bar, but he doesn't get drunk. He just has a beer and, and chats with people. But I am curious to see what rises up out of all this. And I see where some things do. I mean, that was sort of memes, memes. Because I didn't accept that, and I still don't. I still don't accept memes. I still don't accept... I don't accept the aspects of internet culture that were purely a product of the internet. Because as I've explained before, I started using the internet as soon as I could. And it was important to me, and still is. But I like my relationship to the internet was it was a means to learn more and interact with more people about interests that I already had in the flesh. So I wasn't really part of anything that was purely the product of the internet like some people were and are. Like anything, any culture that was purely a product of the internet was not something that I was involved in. All of my involvement with internet culture was. It involved, you know, it involved pursuing interests that I had already established in the flesh. And that's still true in many ways. So that stuff was very foreign to me. But I also recognized that it was relevant. Like when, when I noticed that, oh, you know what? These stupid memes actually do have cultural weight. And some of them are funny. And especially in politics, like the, the amount of influence that they had in the 2016 election, even though I was not a participant in that, I was merely a detached observer. I was intrigued. It felt somewhat magical. 
And so maybe something like that will happen again. Right now, it doesn't feel like it. But there are things that I myself might not be involved with or attached to, but just simply as an observer, I want to be able to watch them rise and fall. I want to watch what bubbles people are blowing. And I hope that I'm able to recognize that. When somebody blows a bubble, even if it's temporary, I want to be able to say, you know what, that's an interesting bubble. That bubble is reflecting the light very interestingly, even for a split second. I'm not going to look for it. I'm not going to search for it. But I do want to be, no matter how old I get, no matter where I'm at in life, I want to be able to recognize that. I want to be able to recognize when someone blows an interesting bubble. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.